What's up, Refresh Your Family? We are back with another Bible study message for you. And as you all know, we are in our Book of Revelation series where we will be navigating through the Book of Revelations together. And this week's message was given by Jorian Wilson, where he is taking a look at the first letter to the Church of Ephesus. And we truly hope and pray that after hearing this message, it resonates with you and it empowers you. So now we're recording. So we learned that John is getting this revelation, revealing of the future and what's taking current, what's taking place currently from God. His audience is the seven churches in the Asia Minor. And then Angie concluded her message with giving us this main idea for the entire book of Revelation, right? We talked about in the video that some people are afraid to read the book for whatever reason it may be, but her main key message that she wanted us to take away from week one was this, fear not tomorrow, tomorrow is one. And so we're moving beyond our introduction to Revelation, and today we are getting ready to talk about the first letter to the seven churches. Specifically, we're going to look at the church in Ephesus. In our text, we're going to see that Jesus has commended the many good deeds and actions of the church of Ephesus, but he reprimands them due to a major fault in their hearts. So let's dive into today's text. I'll be reading Revelation chapter two, verses one through seven. And it reads as, write this letter to the angel in the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles, but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from the place among the churches. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let's pray. God, as we enter into your word today, we ask that you would open our hearts, open our minds to whatever it is that you want to reveal to us. That Lord, as we hear your word, that it would not fall on stony ground, but it would fall on good soil, that it would take root and transform our lives for the better. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we dive into this text, we look at Revelation 2, verse 1, and it says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. So firstly, John is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, right? Last week, Minister Angela Pierce taught us that the angel of each church is likely the pastor or the shepherd or the leader for that particular church. So just to make it plain, right, for the church of Reed Pray Share, Sean would be the angel of that church, most likely. The message John is writing is coming from 
from Jesus, right? Jesus is the one with the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven churches. We learned last week that the seven stars represent the angels, uh, or as we interpret it, the leaders of each church. And we also learned that the seven lampstands represent or are a symbol of each of the seven churches. So I want to just put a note right here, right? And think about how beautiful it is that the text tells us that Jesus holds the leaders of his church in his right hand, which Angie explained to us last week was symbolic of being placed in a position of power and honor. Furthermore, I love how it says that he walks among the churches. This is amazing to think that Jesus is always in our midst. Amen. So as we move forward, looking at verses two through three here, this is where we get to see Jesus bragging about the, the, about the church of Ephesus, right? So here we go. It says, I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles, but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. The first part of this text says, I know all the things you do. This is a friendly reminder, PSA to everyone, right? That Jesus knows everything that the church of Ephesus is doing, but not only them, Jesus knows everything that we do. We, he knows what we do that's good and what we do that is bad. He knows the things that we do in public and what we do in private, the things we do in broad daylight and the things that we do in the dark. He knows the things that we are proud of and also the things that we sneak to do. He knows all of it. We further learn that in these verses that Ephesus has been doing some great work, right? They have been working hard. They have patiently endured. They don't tolerate evil people. They've identified some false apostles and they have patiently suffered without quitting. And as I read this, I don't know about you all, but the church of Ephesus sound like they are some warriors. They sound like they pull up to church listening to some DMX, right? They sound like they'll put some holy hands on you in the name of Jesus. Ephesus sounds like a church that's bowed about it like Master P said, right? They sound like they would be the example for other churches to follow. And that may be the key, the case. However, amidst all the good and praiseworthy things that they have done, Jesus hits them with a but. The word but is simply a conjunction used to introduce a phrase or clause contrasting with what has already been mentioned. In other words, you know that when you hear the word but, the tone of the conversation and the direction of the statement is about to take a swift turn. And I don't know about you all, but when I hear the word, but I begin to brace myself internally because I know the word, but typically negates everything that was previously said. Let me give you a few examples. And hopefully you haven't heard this, but you might have, right? So somebody might come to you and say, hey, you cute, but your hair, your teeth, your style, something about you is jacked up, right? Whatever they say after the but negates everything about you being cute. Somebody may say, you did a good job presenting, but you talked way too long, right? 
Everything about you being a good presenter is negated by because you talk too long. You may have heard, we were impressed by your resume, but we selected another candidate. It's like you could have saved being impressed, right, if you didn't choose me, right? So we know that anytime we hear the word, but we're taking a swift turn and it negates what we've heard before, right? So Jesus has just bragged about the work, patience, endurance, and strength of the church of Ephesus. And here in verse four, he hits them with the but. Verse four through five says, but I have this complaint against you. You do not love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from the place among the churches. So as I read this, right, the first sentence, right, uh, I think about the spirit of Tina Turner. I'm like, what's love got to do with it? And the answer is simple. Love has everything to do with it. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? Earlier passage of scripture before Revelation. It says, if I could speak with all the languages of the earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understand all of God's secret plans and possess all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. So yes, Ephesus, you have done many great things. But if you lack love, it all means nothing. The text goes on to say, look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. So we see Ephesus go from being put on a pedestal, right? And now we're talking about how far they have fallen. Jesus tells them to return to the works they did at first. And as I'm reading this, right, two things come to my mind, right? Firstly, Jesus, I thought they were doing some really good works, right? I mean, in verse two and three, you were bragging about everything they were doing. And then secondly, what were these first works? If they were doing all that was mentioned in verse two through three, right? If they were being patient, showing endurance, working hard, calling out false apostles, and not quitting, what more were they doing at first? That To me, that seemed like a lot, right? That's a big commitment in and of itself. So what more could they have been doing at first? And the truth of this idea is that we have no idea what they were doing at first. But what I believe we need to focus on is their heart posture behind their actions. As I read, I thought about the Pharisees, right, in the Gospels, where Jesus is walking the earth, we hear about the Pharisees, right? They were upright men. They observed and obeyed the law to the utmost degree, but they missed it. They missed it because they were so focused on their outward appearance of being holy that they were distracted from embracing for themselves and transferring to others the love that Jesus offers. Could it have been similar at the church of Ephesus? Was Ephesus caught up in being gospel gangsters 
that they neglected to love Jesus and embrace his love for them and transfer that love to others? The truth is we don't know for sure, but what we do know is that their love for Jesus and for their fellow man was lacking. So we conclude verse five with Jesus saying, if you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. And the first thing I had to say as I read this was, Lord, have mercy. People in Ephesus have been so caught up in doing good works and looking holy and doing all these things. And they're about to miss out on heaven because of their lack of intentionality, their lack of love. Ephesus, if you don't repent for your lack of love for Jesus and your fellow man, your lampstand, your church will be removed from my presence. Jesus is saying, if you don't change, you may continue to be the church of Ephesus. You may continue to meet, you may continue to do your great works, but I will not be in your presence. Yeah, you can continue in that direction, but I will not be a part. And this whole passage reminded me of an earlier passage in Matthew chapter seven, right? Where Jesus is talking about people who do great works, but miss out on heaven. And he says in Matthew seven, verses 21 through 23, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Wow, that's a heavy text. These people had done things in Jesus' name, miracles, cast out demons. And he says, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Family, it's important that we understand that it's good to do great works. But if our heart posture isn't right, if our hearts aren't oriented toward Jesus, we are just making noise. We are just wasting time because it won't matter. I don't want to hear God say, I never knew you, despite all the works that I think I'm doing for the kingdom, right? That's not something that we want to hear. As we move forward to verse six, it says, but this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. And I don't know if you all like movies or read or TV shows, but we go from this serious moment of God reprimanding him, right? To then him praising him again, right? Some would call this like the comic relief. Like if you're in a movie, something very serious has died, right? Somebody might've died or something else, right? And then somebody makes a joke. It's called comic relief. As I read this, I almost feel like this is a bit of comic relief, even though I know Jesus is very serious, right? So Jesus said, but this is in your favor, right? After I said all this stuff about you being removed from my presence, this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. We see that Jesus is really providing the church of Ephesus with some thorough feedback, like they had their year-end performance review. He started off praising them. Then he let them know where they were falling short. And now he's saying, oh, and another thing. The Nicolaitans were a group of Christians who had forsaken true Christian doctrine, right? They were people who lived to uh, satisfy their every desire, right? They were said to have 
unrestrained indulgence, right? So a Nicolaitan would be someone who professes to be Christian, but lives any kind of way that they want to, indulging in any type of sin that they want to, right? So I want to say something else before we move forward. It says, but this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans. It never says that you hate the people themselves. You don't hate the Nicolaitans, but you hate their evil deeds. Just want to make sure there's clarity there. So we move on to verse seven, the last verse in this text. And it says, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. The firstness of this verse simply reminds us that the audience of this letter is the church of Ephesus, but it's also to each of us. It's also to anyone with ears to hear. And I love the confirmation of the triune spirit of God here, right? Right, the triune spirit, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, here we see uh, in this message that Jesus is referred to as the spirit, right? We know that in this passage is coming from Jesus. This is Jesus speaking to John. However, the text refers to him as the spirit in this particular verse. So when I question why I refer to him as the spirit, right? Uh, I'm reminded that it was likely because we know that God is intentional with each and every word that he uses. And I believe he referred to Jesus as the spirit here because the spirit is described as our helper. The spirit is the one who helps us to understand and discern what the text is saying. And so when he says anyone with ears to hear must understand what the spirit is saying, I believe is saying anyone with ears to hear must Listen to what the Spirit is conveying. Listen to what the Spirit is trying to portray, portray and convict within us. So just a little more context about the Spirit, right? It says in John chapter 14, verse 26, it says, this is Jesus talking to the disciples. He says, but when the Father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and remind you of everything I have told you. So this is just very further confirmation that the Holy Spirit is the one who will help us to understand this revelation, help us to understand this text, which is so hard to digest and explain at times. So as we, could, as we go to the end of this chapter, it says, to everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. We are in an ongoing battle, but it's a fixed fight, family. That's the good news. It's a fixed fight for those who have put their trust in Christ alone. Yes, there is a battle, but there are no odds. There is no over, there's no under, there are no projections because the outcome is certain. And if you aren't sure, spoiler alert, Jesus wins and our adversary loses. God's plan for us has always been the tree of life right? It talks about here, those who are victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of 
God. If we go back to the beginning of the Bible, right? If we look in Genesis, right? We find Adam and Eve in their particular situation. We know that they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but there was also a tree that was at the center of that garden. Listen to Genesis chapter two, verses 15 through 17. It says, then the Lord God planted in the garden of Eden in the east, there was placed a man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God placed the man in the garden eating to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat from every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat his fruit, you will surely die. So God has made all these trees, but he puts two trees in the garden in particular, right? Because he's not a he's not a slave driver. He's not someone who makes us do certain things, but he gives us his promise and he gives us a choice to do our own thing, right? In the center of the garden. We see that man would choose to do our own thing, but God's intention was for us to always take and partake in the tree of life. That's a beautiful thing. The whole Bible, the whole gospel is about reconciliation. And we see here in Revelation how God has reconciled his people through Jesus back to his initial plan for us to partake in the tree of life. Amen. Praise God. So what now? Where does the rebuke of Ephesus leave us individually and collectively as a body? What do we take from this message? There are many nuggets from this message, right? But the major theme I want us to ponder on is this. We must love Jesus and our fellow men. If we don't do this, it doesn't matter what works we do. It doesn't matter how many sermons we preach. It doesn't matter how many people we serve. It doesn't matter how much we resist evil. We must love the Lord our God. Love thy neighbor. Listen to how important Jesus says this is in Matthew chapter 22. He says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with this reply, they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, what is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is equally as important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Family, if we are to love Jesus well and love our fellow man well, we must evaluate our heart posture. Are we doing good works? Are we doing great works uh, so that people will call us holy? Do we uh, do the things we do so people on social media will type amen? Do we do the things we do because we want to say that we want people to say they are proud of us? Or do we do them because we love Jesus? We have to ask ourselves, are my actions guided by my love for others or simply for the admiration of others. And we also must ask, do we need to repent? When we talk about repent, repent simply means to change direction, right? To turn from a certain course of living. If we've been doing certain things for the wrong motives, for the wrong reasons, 
other than loving Jesus, we need to repent. We need to turn and realize the things that we do are out of abundance of love that God has shown us, abundance of love that we have for him and abundance of love that we have for mankind. So as we conclude this message, I just want to take a few seconds, right, for us to sit in silence. If you can, I ask that you would close your eyes. Uh, if you're not driving, if you're somewhere, you can close your eyes and sit in a moment of silence and ask the Holy Spirit what it is that he wants you to take away from this message. Are there things in your heart that you need to repent for? Do you love Jesus with all your heart, mind, soul? Do you love your fellow man? So let's take a moment and listen to what the Holy Spirit has to say to each of us. <laughs> 